Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez with you here uh, on this first show in the month of June. And uh, we're in the lean season now, man. <laughs> um, I, I pushed the uh, the bannies back a week because we still we're still working on getting some uh, some nominees from the staff and everything. And we're going to be getting to that too. But we still but we also have some interesting things to talk about. Um, MLB draft. Brian Murphy's going to join us a little bit later, and uh, and our guest for the show is Emily Marin from uh, uh, the head coach of UCF women's golf. Lopez, uh, how are you? In uh, uh, how are you alongside me in uh, anti UCF land? Apparently, <laughs> well, you know, how's how's the food? Is is the is the spread nice over over there? Good, actually, I, I get a two for one deal. Nice, uh, I get a nice, you know, first spread, yeah. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> oh God, the internet is. Always two for one sometimes, you know. You can get a good deal on it. Yeah, Boga, bro. Hey, right. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, the internet is awesome. Uh, we are Black and Gold Banneret. We are SB Nation's home uh, for the UCF Knights. Uh, you can catch us at UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Black and Gold Banneret, and of course Black and Gold Banneret.com. So we'll get to all that stuff here in a little bit, but. Um, we're going to start with a real quick thing on an experiment that I did on um, over the weekend, and I wanted to share it with you and get your insight on this, Eric. I thought this was really I, – I, I don't know why I did this because on the face of it, it kind of seems like a waste of time, but, um, but I thought it was interesting. So I decided for some crazy reason to, um, to ask the question of UCF fans on Twitter, um, what – Team, are, are you okay with UCF scheduling a two for one, two on the road, one in Spectrum Stadium, with X school? And I went through the entire Power Five conference, every school in the Power Five, uh, all all the five major schools plus Notre Dame. Okay, and I was really surprised at some of the uh, results, and I was actually really encouraged by the participation. Thanks to everybody that voted. Um, every poll got at least triple digit um, votes in it, which I think was really interesting. And I think what it reveals not only is um, is a you know a very small sample size of UCF fans' preferences for the kind of opponents that they would be a little squishy on Eric, but also I think is a real good measurement of what fa- the UCF fan base thinks is the pecking order of cow- uh, of of college football. All right, so. So here's the results real quick. Um, every school was yes or no, except for Rutgers. I added a hell no in there, but I counted that as a no. Um, here are the only nine teams out of the 65 in the Power Five in the Power Five received more than 50 percent. Yes. All right, you ready? I want to see. I, I, I don't know if you have, do you have it pulled up by the way or not. I'm going to because if not, I'm going to ask you if you can guess which nine. Uh, I think I, I mean I've seen it, so I'll be I'll be honest. I would be cheating. Okay, okay, okay. So so let, let me give you the, let me give you the nine. Okay, here we go. Alabama's the leader at eighty four percent. Yes, this is uh, yeah. Right, followed by <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Surprise, surprise. Um, Clemson at seventy nine. Ohio State seventy seven. 
Oklahoma 74, Michigan. Oh, all, those four, all those programs you just mentioned, right? But in the playoffs, right? And, and by the way, if you took those four, and by the way, take and I wrote this. You take the number five is Michigan at 68. If you took all those teams over 60 that are over 67 percent, who got two out of three yeses at least, like that. That to me would not. That would be like your your college football playoff pool, right? Those, Alabama, yeah. Clemson, Oklahoma, and either Ohio State I, I, or by Michigan. By the right? way, some big brands, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, six, uh, Georgia had 64%. Notre Dame had 63 now that's let me let me – because you, you used to cover Georgia. Uh-huh. How much of that is Kirby Smart's recent success? Like, would people have voted that high for Georgia, say – during Mark Rick's seven and six, no, year. you know what I mean. Like, I mean, I wonder. No, they wouldn't how have. They, that. they would have been below LSU, who, by the way, is after Notre Dame at sixty-one. Uh, and then you, and then the the the, the 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 dividing line seems to be USC and Texas. USC, Southern Cal, is fifty-one percent yes. Texas is forty-seven percent. Now, you, you brought up yes. By well, the way. Well, okay. be, I mean, yeah, I'm gonna really be bummed out that I gotta go to Los Angeles twice. <laughs> well, I well, I I think I think part of that has to do with, and I think you brought this up before. I went at timing, right? If USC oh, was yeah. going 12 and one every year, like, like they were in the Pete Carroll days, they would yeah, be this way was the up. Pete there. Carroll era, I really think that percentage yeah. would be like 90 percent yes. Yeah, I, yeah, I feel I feel like they're kind, they're kind of still tiny. riding the very last bit of that wave. Now, I I think there's another factor that plays into this that's timing related, and that is, and and that's you see that with Texas, right? UCF has already played at Texas once, um, and uh, and. Uh, and so I think the fans that voted were like, you know, been there, done that. No, um, yeah, which I get. I don't necessarily agree with, but I get. Um, by the way, the other teams that were in the thirty to fifty percent range. This is an interesting batch of teams: Texas, Oregon, Penn State, Florida State, which is the highest in-state team, by the way. Uh, Auburn, Texas A&M, Michigan State. Um. Florida had 23% yes. Miami had 21% yes. Nebraska, Scott Frost, 22% yes. Um, and then everyone else is who cares. Oh, by the way, this year's opponents, North Carolina and Georgia Tech, both had 5% yes, 95% well, well, no. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's the opponent. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Um, well, Georgia Tech's also on the future schedule, but Pitt is... Four percent, yes. Ninety-six percent, no. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. The thing I find interesting, I mean, I, there might be a team or two I disagree, or I would have added. But again, a lot of this is timing, and like I would USC with their tradition. I mean, I'd like to see USC and all that. Um, but what I find interesting is that based on that, then there are contrary to some of the minority media out there and fans even. UCF fans are willing to do a two-for-one and actually don't disagree with Mike Oresco and his comments about two-for-ones, contrary to belief from others. Yeah. That's my conclusion to that. Well, I, it, it, what it tells me is that there's this there, – there, there's wiggle room for Danny White. Like, if he came out and he said – if let's say tomorrow, okay, UCF scheduled a two-for-one with Oklahoma – Okay, UCF fans would be going crazy. 
I think all that stuff about oh, no two for ones be like, oh, shoot, we'll take Oklahoma, you know. And if Danny, because UCF would announce that with great enthusiasm, no? He's proven that I think the people that have been saying that no two for ones under any circumstances from the fan, I think that's the minority of the fan base. I think there's some fan base to be open yeah. to it. I think it's a vocal, uh, I, I do think it's a vocal minority. I think that most fans you, get the position, but if like, shoot, we got a, we got a shot at Oklahoma and, or Clemson, and, oh, sign me right. up, you know? And by the way, there's no wrong answer on this. Like, I think there's a, unfortunately, this has become like, well, it's either or. And you know, I'm going to quote Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, said uh, prior to one of the NBA final games. And they were talking about uh, the relationship between the players and the owners in the league. Because, you know, Draymond Green had said that he doesn't, you know, they don't refer to him as owners because that's more of a slavery term. It's more of a partnership. Type thing. And so that got some reaction. And Adam talked about how, yeah, you know what? We have a partnership. We don't look at it as a owning people. We have a, a par- partnership, and certainly we disagree on certain things. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's a partnership, and you have to compromise, uh, which he said is kind of lacking in today's society, which I thought was a fascinating quote <laughs> from Adam Silver. I don't know where he was referencing to as far as society in general. Maybe he just thinks that, that today's day and age, maybe people just don't see the other side of things. Um, I think everybody – has their own situation in college football. Not everybody has the same situation as UCF. Not everybody's drawing 43,000, 44,000. Not everybody has a cabana in their stadium. So for for people to question other teams' scheduling philosophies is kind of – I don't understand why we're questioning other people's philosophies when we don't like the fact that people are questioning our philosophy of scheduling. You know what I mean? Well, 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 I I think that there's this this quest for everybody to to kind of – uh, to have a, uh, a a uniform thing, like you know, UCF fans think that every school in the American should do what UCF does because UCF right now is the lead football brand in the conference. Okay, and I get that, but yeah, you know, and, and the whole idea is yeah, well, the whole idea is hey, hey, look, we're football. setting we're setting the example, but you got it, but you got to remember, like, okay, so you think Tulsa should not expect accept two for ones? Like Tulsa has no choice, <laughs> you know. And, oh, Lord! I mean, they all have different scenarios. By the way, right, right. They're going to do Alabama doesn't schedule the same as Vanderbilt. Like Vanderbilt took a game at Notre Dame without a return. Alabama wouldn't do that. So right. that that idea that a whole conference should have the same philosophy is nonsense. Like across the board, like yeah. Duke, Duke scheduling differently than say a Clemson. You know what I mean? Like it's. Every conference schedule is different yeah. with different teams. Now, everybody has different agendas. Now, now, yeah, and everybody has different business models that they have to account for too, which I think is the other really interesting, you know, part of this. Like UCF is catering to its business model. USF and Memphis, you know, who's scheduled a two for one with Arkansas, is catering to their business model. It doesn't mean that those teams are losers. It means that they got bills to pay, and that's how they, and that's how they can pay the bills. Because if they can't do that, there is no football for them. But um, here's the other thing, and, and I, I want to credit Rob, uh, the uh, who is with the uh, UCF New York chapter. Rob Sassenti, I believe his name is. I, I forget. Rob, forgive me if that's wrong. But um, so his question to me on Twitter was, "Well, if that's the case, then stop calling yourself a Power Six league." And and I'm like, well. It's a marketing campaign. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 designed to you know, it, to solidify the base. It's not it's not designed to say like this is what we're well, going to do on the outside. Here's but what the market people have missed the point on the marketing campaign. What it has done, and it's actually been successful from this standpoint, 
it has separated the American from Conference USA, from Mountain the West, from the MAC, from the Sun Belt. Nobody ever like pairs them up that often. It's kind of like like the American is kind of their own island. Yeah, uh, they're talked about more with the Pac-12 and the Big 12 and all that instead of being talked to with the Mountain West. So I think that's the marketing campaign there. But the rea- the marketing campaign does not change the fact that American pro- schools are making what? And a new TV deal is going to be what? Seven and seven, nine? What is, yeah, seven about, it's on average $7 million. Whereas an SEC school is going to make 30 to $40 million. You know what I mean? So that's, right. that, that's not changing. Which, which, by the way, also, you know, those other conferences that you mentioned, like the Sun Belt and Conference USA, they're going to be making what? Some of them are making less than a million a year. So there, there is a... The American occupies this unique space where I think that's the thing that everybody's saying is like, well, you're either one or the other. Well, not necessarily um, from a from a revenue standpoint. Now, if we could talk about it from a power within the NCAA standpoint, like the NCAA rulebook specifically states that the Power Five conferences have autonomy. Yeah, I mean that's written into the rulebook, and there's nothing the American can do about that. Um, but they very clearly are you know occupy this gray zone between the top five conferences and the the autonomous five conferences and then the group of i guess we can call it the group of four conferences and that's and and that's okay you know and and i think the other thing too is you know there's listen it's no secret that ucf and usf memphis cincinnati and houston and and uconn are kind of knocking on the door every once in a while for the inclusion into that big revenue group right but let's say they all left tomorrow like the americans still gonna be there you know and they'll be fine (laughs) and yeah they'll be fine because there's there's only a handful of programs that can really leave and hurt a conference like if oklahoma and texas were to leave the big 12 that would crush the big 12 yeah you know what I mean? Yeah, that, that, then it's like the rest of the, the rest of them might merge with the with the American. To be honest with you, <laughs> well, I think that's what. To be honest with you, if you gave me a, a hey a prediction five years ahead, I think that's what's kind of going to happen. Hate to spoil it for people. Uh, in fact, I, I think I mean, and this is the thing. I've I talked to a lot of different people involved in administrations throughout the country because I just you know I've been fortunate. I travel a lot and I you know like to talk to people. Yeah. You do the softball example, thing, and you get to talk to a lot of people there, you know. And yeah, and well, uh, just around the country, you know. And when I do this first thing, and you know, one of the things that I was told, for example, a lot of people talk about Houston, for example, and mm-hmm. the Big Twelve. I've been told that a lot of people in Houston actually think there's a better chance they're going to go to the Pac-12 because the Pac-12 is actually struggling more than the Big Twelve. Everybody assumes the Big Twelve just wants to make moves because they're actually doing fine financially. The Big Twelve, they're actually the third best. From a making money standpoint, right now, as far as the big conferences, the Pac-12 is the one that's got a lot of issues um, with Larry Scott and, and the Pac-12 network distribution and the finances. They're the ones they're struggling, and there's some conver- that There's the belief that the Pac-12 is going to be the one that's going to be aggressive to make moves to help their brand to enhance maybe their TV package. And one of the programs that's being looked at, from what I was told, is Houston. That's why Houston's making all the moves they're making. So, and, and so that's. That's the thing that people don't get is that um, there is no guarantees of anything. Like there, like you said, if I had to bet, there's a more likely scenario that if Oklahoma and Texas decide to leave to either go to the Big Ten or the SEC in five years, 
that UCF's going to be joining a bunch of teams in the Big 12 and the American, and it's still going to be the similar deal. Right. So right. you never know. So it's, I don't know, it, the whole thing is really fascinating. When you get that kind of feedback, and again, I want to thank everybody who voted in these polls. I, th- I think it was really interesting. What, what, can I, let me ask you this question. What yeah. I don't understand, everybody, it's become the Vogue thing for some people to be negative towards a two-for-one. Why? Yet Cincinnati is playing Ohio State, Okay. Cincinnati now is playing Ohio State the second time at Ohio State. There's no return game to, you know what I mean? Like, Ohio mm-hmm. State ain't playing Cincinnati in Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati also signed up to play Notre Dame. Want to take a guess if Notre Dame's coming? Oh, of course Cincinnati not. They're not going to Nippert Stadium. So, so wouldn't a two-for-one be better than a two-for-nothing? You know what I mean? Like, Can I put, uh, can I put, uh, can I put UCF? Uh, UCF crazy guy hat on here. What? Because can I put UCF crazy guy hat on here to answer your question? Sure. It's because Cincinnati's a bunch of losers. That's why. Well, they're going to be the second best team in the league. <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> um, but 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 my point is, I mean, there's a lot of different ways people schedule. I mean, Florida State this year is playing Boise State in Jacksonville. They're not, boy, and then they're going to Boise. Is that beneath Florida State? I mean, should they be? Is that are they lowering themselves? I mean, are college football programs lowering themselves for playing FCS opponents? I would argue that's more of a demeaning thing than playing two for one. So, I, you know, look, everybody has their philosophies in scheduling, and the bottom line is you got to fill out a schedule however you can yeah. and whatever is best for you. And I think for people to, and I think that was the point that Mike Oresco was making that everybody's making a hoopla about. And here's the other thing that people forget about the Mike, whether you're for Mike Oresco or not. And I know you and you and I are getting crushed because we're defending the guy, God forbid, uh, because we actually think he's done a good job, but you know, what's more important, you know, who's more important that actually thinks Mike Oresco done a good job. Forget you or me, or forget if somebody thinks he hasn't, well, how many the- members are in this league? Yeah, 13. <laughs> it's, Who pays his checks? That would be the presidents of the 13-member schools. So, I, I would assume that if they had a problem with him, they would have gotten rid of him pretty yeah, easily. Exactly. I mean, in fact, they had a, they just had a conference meetings. and You never hear anybody in the uh, in the league say, oh, man, he's terrible. You know, like, I can't believe it. Yeah. In fact, the majority of the league agrees with that assessment because the majority of the league is doing two-for-one. So, again... Look at the bosses, and the example was Mike Oresco even said, this is a great example about the league and how it works. Mike Oresco brought up the whole maybe we're considering change, you know, getting rid of divisions because he was worried about uh, losing that automatic bid, you know, like the scenario last year where had Memphis upset UCF, the, the American would have been out of the all-access bowl. Well, that got quickly voted down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even admitted that. It's like, yeah, there was no support for that at all. You right. know what I mean? But give him credit well, for admitting that. Hey, you know what? That was my idea. They all shot it down. Oh, yeah. we move on. Well, I, I think I think here's the thing that everyone doesn't want to admit about this, um, is that both Danny White and Mike Oresco are right. They're right with respect to their, with respect to their respective economic models and constituencies. And that's okay. Um, and, and the sooner everyone, I think, comes to an understanding on that, the better. All right. By the way, you agreed, said- agreed. And, 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 and agreed. And by the way, just because USF is scheduling two for ones does not mean that's hurting UCF. Because at the end of the day, I don't believe Alabama ever was going to come to play UCF. I don't think Florida was obviously ever going to play UCF. A lot of these teams aren't going to play UCF at Spectrum Stadium, right? On a one for one deal. So yeah. and I don't and think if you're UC- any- and if you're UCF, you know you 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 as we've seen you you offer them that. And if they say no, it's like okay, moving on. You're We're not right. Gonna- exactly. <laughs> you know. Exactly. 
Okay, I get it. You, you don't want to play at our home stadium? Fine, but we're not going to play you. Um, uh, by the way, you said, real quick, before we leave this uh, for there, um, you said that you would have added a couple more schools in addition to the top 65. Who would you have added? I'm just curious. Into the, into uh, the Twitter poll. Who were the ones that, well, I mean, I would, I mean, was Texas a yes or a no? Did that end up being oh, a yes or no? Uh, Texas was 47% no, 53% yes. Again, I think okay. that has a lot to do with timing and the fact that UCF. I would have obviously yes. I would have said fine to Texas. I'm good for UCLA, uh, USC. I would have added USC uh, with their tradition. UC, I'd like USC to see was a, and, UC, USC was a yes. It was about that's about as 50-50 yeah. as it gets. Um, I'm not against Miami, by the way, for that record. I, but, but I mean, if you want to do home, oh, home I'm, not, Miami, I'm not either. I, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm because pretty, I think I think Miami, Miami can be. Florida, ha- if they wanted to do something, I would be for that. I, I also not because Florida, I think not Florida though. I think not Miami Florida. could be had twice. In down south, I, I actually do I think agree. that. By the way, nothing. There is a recruiting standpoint about this. If you went down to Miami a couple of times, that's not the worst thing in the world either. Right. right. Well, that's why you see is think, okay again, with going I, I down to FIU and FAU two of the last three years. <laughs> yeah, don't be surprised if that continues. But yeah. like, I, you know, I'm open to idea. I, I don't. I'm not like I don't believe. You know, obviously, I think they hit the. Yeah. They for the most part hit the right teams as far as oh, I wouldn't play them. Although, like for example, like Tennessee. A lot of that is because the way Tennessee has struggled, and they might continue to struggle. But what if Tennessee was a top ten program? Yeah, uh, you know, I think people would change their mind. Like Georgia, I'm, I was really surprised that people would be for Georgia. I really was. I'll be honest with you. Um, well, I mean, it, that's because Georgia is where they are right now. I, the, the one now, the one I think that I think I mentioned this before, but like the one that I think was like is it, kind of everyone's like selling right now, but they're probably going to buy in the next couple of years is UCLA. Because Chip Kelly's there. Right. Once he gets them back up, people. Yeah. And then, and then, like, you you want like one at least one guaranteed trip to the Rose Bowl? Yeah, sure. (laughs) I'll do that. My whole point. I mean, from a fan standpoint, don't you want to travel to cool places? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I. I, Well, that's the other thing is I'd be curious to know to what extent fans factored that in in saying yes, and to what extent they were just looking at the the team. You know what I mean? Um. So you know, I don't know. Uh, like me, I, me I selfishly, think, I voted. I, this. I will say this: I think the Pac-12, you're more likely to get home and homes, and you may not have. You don't may not have to do two for ones, because I think the Pac-12 does not have the leverage as say an SEC or Big Ten school does. Yeah. No, that's true. And uh, yeah, so all right, um, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the show, Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez with you here. All right, now it's time for us to get to our interview. And uh, we're going to be doing these team report cards uh, throughout the summer. And our first, uh, our first UCF head coach to actually come in is uh, Emily Marin, head coach of uh, UCF women's golf, who went to the NCAA uh, championships. And you spoke to her, Eric, uh, just the other day, in fact, right? Yeah, after another great year where they get to the national championship round, a top 25 finish, uh, another monster year for Emily Marin, of course, who has really uh, taken this program, you know, was in good shape when she arrived, but has taken it to another level as well. As she took over this program in June 29, 2012, led him to another NCAA tournament appearance after a runner-up appearance in the American Conference, and as I mentioned, gets to the champion, national championship round in the top 25. Here is now my conversation with UCF women's head coach, Emily Marin on the Black and Gold Banner. And joining us now, of course, she's the head coach of the UCF women's golf program here, of course, coming off a phenomenal year where they ended up playing for the national championship. And, uh, of course, I speak with 
Emily Mary joining us now here on Black and Gold Banneret. Uh, Coach, how you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. So, have you? Had, give me a chance now. You've had a chance to reflect on the year. What kind of stands out to you now that you've had a little time after the season here to reflect on this incredible year? Yeah, it was it was quite a run there in the spring. Um, you know, we had a very young team this year, so starting out the year, I don't know that um, we could confidently say that we'd be at the at the finals. But we kind of kept building all year long, and I saw a lot of growth and maturity from our team in the spring and. You know, just kind of felt like every tournament we played in the spring, it just kind of get kept getting a little bit better. And obviously, we went to conference and finished runner-up, got the at-large bid, got sent all the way out to Washington to the regional out there. And we really just tried to tell the girls um, to embrace that. Half of them thought we were going to Washington D.C., so I had to explain to them <laughs> that it's the state of Washington, and um, we just really embraced that trip. I think that's why we played so well out there. It was a beautiful place. We just enjoyed it. We had a young squad, obviously, with two freshmen and um, two sophomores who have never been. You know, Maria had been to regionals before. So I think we just enjoyed the trip so much. We, you know, really went with not a lot of expectations. You know, we were the 13th seed, and I said to them in the middle of the practice round, um, you know, only one time in the history of NCAAs has a 13th seed ever advanced. So we have nothing to lose. Let's not be nervous. You just need to go play and have fun and it, it was quite a ride. It certainly was. Uh, you know, you had a young roster. I mean, I, I know that you don't, coaches don't usually have expectations on your team, but like, you know, going into the year, what, like, was there a moment in the, in the year where you're like, you know, this team could actually like really go deeper and, you know, make, make some noise here in the postseason and even if compete for the yeah, conference title, you know, was there that moment? Yeah, the the Moon Golf Invitational, that was middle of February, and we won that event. That's really what propelled us through our spring. Um, we were really trying to figure out who that five spot was going to be. I think the five spot is really important in college golf. And we, we played a lot of different girls back and forth in the fall in that spot. And then finally, you know, we, we got Chinatsu in that five spot. And Chinatsu pulled through for us at the Moon Golf Invitational. She finished third individually, her best college tournament ever. And that was really key to our whole spring season. We had different people perform well throughout the whole spring. It, you know, Obviously, Elizabeth Moon led us all year, but then we had stellar performances from Chinatsu there and then obviously Anna Laura at the regional. It was just a true team effort, and I think that's what it takes to, to get to the national championship. You have to have all one through five throughout the year playing well and um, at any moment to go deep, and um, that's really what propelled us to the national championship. I want to talk about Laura, for example, who had an incredible regional, was within one stroke away from winning <laughs> uh, the NCAA regional there. Just talk about her performance in that regional and her whole year. Yeah, Anna Laura, um, she is a player who probably has had the most growth in two years that I've ever seen in my experience of coaching. And I sat down with her early on in the spring and just really gave her a shot of confidence. I, I told her, I think that, you know, she has so much potential in this game and she could really make it at the next level and just try to fill her with confidence because she self-admittedly will say she struggled with that. And I think just being able to tell her how good I think she really is and that she has the potential to be one of the best. And, you know, she said that really helped her. And that was a breakthrough performance for her at regionals. Um, you know, the second round, she was paired with the player of the year, Maria Fossi, and that's a fellow Mexican for her. And I know that she was a little nervous 
but you know she went toe to toe with Maria and actually um, tied her that day and beat her in, in the tournament. And I think for her, that's a moment in your career that you can put that in your memory bank and say, I, I can play with the best. And we, we just see her grow with each and every week. She gets more confident. She gets better. She has a lot of room to grow in her game. Um, so we're really excited for her to come back and be a leader for us next year. Of course, another player that has got a lot of room and excitement for is uh, Elizabeth Moon, was the American Conference uh, freshman of the year, was all conference honors. Uh, what can you say about her in her first year as a freshman there, just accomplishing what she did out of Forest City, Arkansas, and what the future holds for her? Yeah, you know, Elizabeth was kind of a late pickup for us, too, in the recruiting process. Um, we had some money open up, and you know, people ask me, how did you find Elizabeth? And, and I tell the funny story about my, my parents were watching the U.S. Junior Girls, and I didn't have any scholarship money at that time. And they said on the on the broadcast, hey, you know, Elizabeth Moon hasn't committed anywhere. And sure enough, my mom said, hey, why don't you look at this girl? And I said, well, I don't have any money. And then all of a sudden we had some money open up with some, some players leaving, and um, it, it just all worked out. And I, I can't say enough about Elizabeth. You know, she has tremendous heart in – that just is the reason why she's so good. Um, her dad is her instructor, and they just work, work, work. I mean, she is probably the hardest worker I've ever seen. She loves the game. She loves to study the game. Um, it's not unusual for her to be out there practicing three, four, five. Um, and I just think she will continue to grow and get better. She just um, she's very methodical. She she's a thinker of the game. She she believes in herself and her game and doesn't try to really tinker with that too much. And um, yeah, she was a, a good leader for us. You know, it's, it's you never know with a freshman coming in, you know, what their game is going to translate to. And she was just so consistent. We knew, you know, it reminded me of Ashley Holder that we had back in the day. You just always knew Elizabeth was going to come in with a good score to continue to grow here within our program. You know, you mentioned the leadership. Such a young roster. How does who who is there a player there that leads by example, or maybe is the a, a vocal leader there? I mean, throughout the year and kind of uh, with such a young roster, who was that person? If you had that person, or did you have to yeah, be the, more it, the vocal? Yeah, it's funny. I think everybody plays a role in the team, and, mm -hmm. and that for us would be Alyssa Lamro. Alyssa's from here in Florida, and she was again a freshman in this lineup. And maybe she wasn't always our top performer as far as scores, but she is our vocal leader, and the girls will say that she has that. She's vocal. She's not shy. She likes to do the the team cheers, and she kind of is the one that spurs everybody on, and you know, claps for them out in the golf course. And, and you need that. Like I said, everybody on the team has a role, and sometimes you know, I don't think the leader always has to be necessarily the best player. It can be your three, four, or five player who you know is the is the one in the van, you know, loose, keeping us loose and relaxed. And, and she just loves to play, and she has a spirit about her that's contagious. And I think that really filtered um i talk about our team chemistry a lot when we ask about our success this spring and, and i attribute it to that team chemistry um i think when you're playing for each other that you play harder um so we had five girls who were playing for each other not just themselves and that's why we did so well how does this com team compare to the other teams you've had here uh you know just overall i mean you've had some great teams some great players but like where does how does this year and this team compare to others um, yeah, we've had some really good teams um, throughout my seven years here. We've, we've, you know, gone to regionals and won conference championships, but I would say this team was unique for that team chemistry. Um, 
they they just really the five of them we went with them from the moon golf invitational on and it was just something about the five of them together that is not like any other team i've coached we've had probably more talented teams as far as golf but i don't know that we've had teams that have been as close as these five that truly they're friends on and off the golf course they're rooting for each other and that was probably our difference this year you took over this program in June of 2012. As you look back here in the seven years and the success you've had, is it what you thought it would be when you when you first got here? Or has it been even much more better experience than you even imagined when you first got here? Yeah, I knew the program was in good shape. You know, Courtney Trimble did a good job here. Um, the team was, you know, going to to regionals and. Then they were in the conference, they were conference USA back then. So obviously we switched to Americans since then. And you know we've just had um, uh, tremendous leadership here too, with Danny White coming in. You know four years ago, I think that all of the programs have just been elevated. And I think that's probably the difference is that um, when you're a student athlete, and you see all the other teams performing at a high level. And as a coach, uh, that's just exciting, and it's something you want to be a part of. And I think UCF, um, it's on the map now. We talk about that all the time. And, you know, I had that moment at the national championship when I, I was, we were warming up and I, I looked down the line of the names that were there. We're right in between Duke and Florida and UCLA. And I thought, you know, this is where UCF belongs. And, you know, maybe they have years on us as far as history and tradition, but I think UCF is definitely branding itself and in, in, is amongst those best teams in the country. And it, and it's just only going to continue to get better. Yeah, I, I would say so. And, and making noise there. And the whole sport of women's golf in the college game, I think, has grown immensely with the selection shows, with the Golf Channel and their coverage and everything. Uh, I mean, it seems to me you've been on, in, involved longer. Does it seem like the women's golf in the college game and even the men's, for that matter, it seems it's grown now from an exposure standpoint and coverage standpoint where people are now more aware of, of college golf? Yeah, I'm starting uh, year 20 this year in college golf coaching, and um, it certainly has changed a lot in the last 20 years, and it's it's wonderful. Um, the Golf Channel coming in a couple years ago, it just it it did so much for us as far as exposure that people can actually turn on the TV and see how good these players are, both the men's and women's players, and just kind of team golf. and And the Golf Channel has really done a great job with that. So. We're thankful to them for that, and it's exciting for the the players to know that they're they're getting exposure. And you know, it's fun to see UCF up there on the Golf Channel and and um, get our brand out there. So, yeah, I think it'll just continue to grow. I think the match play format is fun for people to watch at home. So that's our goal is to you know get to the national championship and uh, make that match play, and that that's a fun format to play for the national championship. For the audience that doesn't follow uh, closely, describe the, for the audience now your off season as it goes now, and then before you know it, you got to get going ready for uh, the 2019-2020 season because it's a quicker turnaround than people might think. What just take us through uh, what's it what's it like uh, from from here on out? Yeah, um, we have a couple months here in the summer where basically we're just working on getting our freshmen coming in. Um, we have a couple coming in. Next year, we'll come for summer school. So um, she's from Thailand, so I'm currently working on getting her here and getting her settled. And, you know, the the players on the team, um, the NCAA doesn't allow us to really work with them too much in the summer. So it's a, they're kind of on their own. They go play in tournaments. And as coaches, we just get on the recruiting trails and start looking for, you know, the future, 2021, 22s. I mean, we're looking at ninth and 10th graders. And, you know, for us, we'll travel the world. Uh, we'll go to Europe, um, 
and, and recruit a few events over there. So it's fast and furious. We have about June and July that the, the team comes back. The first week of school is like, you know, third week in August. So, and then from there we travel uh, two weeks after the first day of school. So uh, we get a little bit of break and, and I, they need it. Um, I know the girls, this is the time of year where they can kind of take a little break and, and work on some things in their game and then just get right back to it in August. What's it like? And, and we, we've had John Roddick on and then Brian Canico, the tennis coaches, and they have the similar deal where, you know, you're both playing a sport that is so is international, where it's so a world game. And so not only, you know, you're not just recruiting in the States, but you're recruiting across the world, if, if you will, and, and, and many uh, different countries to find uh, players. What is that like uh, from a recruiting standpoint, uh, finding talent all over the place? Yeah, it's it's interesting for sure. You know, a lot of people think we go to all these countries, and that's not necessarily the case. I mean, we we work with a lot of recruiting agencies who you know contact us, and we'll go like the girl I have coming from Spain. I saw her play in Canada, or the girl we have coming from Thailand. We saw her play out at the World Juniors in San Diego. So, um, you know, we'll try to get over to the British Junior Girls as a major tournament in Europe. So, you know, we know our sport is global, and to compete with the best, um, if you, you look at the rosters of the best women's college golf teams, it's very international. So. Um, you know, it doesn't matter to me what country you're from. I mean, we're just looking for talent and people who have similar values to us. And, you know, we only take one or two every year, so we have to be pretty selective with that. So we definitely make sure we get to know the, the player and her family and go to see her play. And sometimes that takes us, you know, all across the world. But um, it's definitely a, a fun experience for us as coaches to to bring girls in and give them this experience of college golf and get them their college degree and um, help them along their way. You mentioned you had a great chemistry this year. You're going to add some pieces to it for next season. So as a coach now, how do you, you know, balance out the new faces into this great chemistry and keep that chemistry going in for next year? Yeah, I always say I think that's a lot on me. Um, you know, I always say attitude reflects leadership. So I, you know, try to communicate with our current players of the importance of welcoming, welcoming the new players into our family. And, you know, there's only two girls, and they're one from Spain, one's from Thailand. So this is their family. I mean, they're very far away from their families, and it's a new atmosphere. So the, the girls on the team have to really take that responsibility on. As coaches, we have to take that responsibility on of – making them feel welcome and bringing them in and, and showing them, you know, around campus and around town and making sure that we are their family. I mean, we're so close. There's only seven or eight girls in the team and two coaches. So, you know, these are my kids in, in essence, and that's a big responsibility that I take on that their parents, you know, send them to me from all over the world. And I'm the league of person that they know. So, you know, that uh, is a, huge responsibility for me and an honor for me really to take these girls, these daughters of, of people and, and take them in for four years and um, make sure they're happy and successful. And, you know, I always say you have to be happy first. So they have to be happy here and like where they're at to play good golf, to get good grades, you know, and that's a big part of my job is making sure the team chemistry is good. And, you know, whether it's they're going out to dinner with the girls and, and watching movies or in the dorms or, you know, just, hanging out with them, taking them shopping, you know, that that's a whole experience. And it's, it's more than just golf and school. You have to be happy here. And that's um, a big part of our job. 
I know uh, you, you follow every sport at UCF because I've seen you at a lot of the UCF sporting events. We cross mm-hmm. paths, and heck, you've thrown a first pitch out at uh, UCF baseball before, mm-hmm. and even at softball. Uh, but mm-hmm. obviously, this past year, this year has been an incredible year. Uh, I believe like 12 out of 16 teams made postseason. Teams, uh, of course, Becky Kramer and Rowing playing for they got to the national championship round in their sport. Uh, I know you're aware. What's that like uh, being around all these coaches and, and and everybody having success? And I know it's under Danny White's umbrella and that's a big part of it but what's it like uh, do you guys feel it when everybody else is having success and does that feed off to your program yeah I mean I I think I mean I I would never view that as pressure or anything like that we're all rooting for each other and you know hey athletics is hard I mean you can maybe have a team that looks good on paper um and recruit kids and you know I I said it yesterday in our town hall meeting a lot of things have to go right for all of this to happen whether you know, that's from your team travel to your business office to your athletic training to academics. You know, it takes a whole village for all of this to happen, and we're all in this together. You know, whether you have a down year or you have a great year, there's so much support here at UCF, and, you know, we're realistic. You know, we're going to compete like heck every year to, to make that national championship, but, you know, a lot has to go right, and we just want to make sure every day we're doing what we can do, um, whether it's in the classroom, on the course, in the office to support each other. Um, like I said, I think it's a contagious um, atmosphere here. You know, it starts with the football success we had a couple of years ago, and it seems to just be trickling down. And I think when they see, especially now with social media, it's, it's so prominent in, in athletics. I mean, these kids want their, their face out there. They want to get acknowledged. They know that people are watching. So I think when you know you have all these people behind you, supporting you, uh, we had a tremendous send-off when we went to the national championship. We probably had, 75 people from our athletic department came out to uh, welcome, you know, send the girls off and wish them well. And that meant a lot to them, you know, for us to pull away and see all these people out there at 8.30 in the morning clapping for the girls. You know, I think that we, it, it just means something more when you go out to compete with that your chest. A couple of things before we let you go. If I put you in charge of golf, uh, it could be the college game, it could be the professional game, it could be the LPGA, it could be the PGA. Uh, whatever you want. If there's something you would like to see added to the game or changed in the game or you think is needed for the sport, uh, what would you want, what would you want to do? Um, I think for college golf, you know, a lot of coaches, we talk about it is more match play. I mean, I think if you watched if you saw any of the coverage on the golf channel, it's so exciting to watch and it's even more exciting to play match play. And I think maybe we have to figure that out. We've talked a lot about, potentially, you know, could you have a stroke play national championship maybe in the fall and a match play championship in the spring, some sort of format where, you know, you know, it's a little odd that we have a match play championship in the spring, but we play stroke play all year. We never play match play in a tournament. So for us to determine our national championship by match play, it's almost a different game. You, you kind of play different. Um, you have different strategies. You have different players that, that are match play players and, compared to stroke play. So I'd like to see that. I don't know if I'll ever see that, but, um, you know, the golf channel was smart when they told us to go to match play because it is very good for TV. So it's fun to watch and you're just playing for that one point for your team. And I mean, I think most coaches you talk to, most players you talk to, they love match play and we just don't get that format. So if the NCAA could figure that out somehow, how we can incorporate more match play, that would be something I would do. How do, I mean, is there a way to prep? I mean, you mentioned because you don't get to play match play often. These are young players. Uh, 
I mean, mm-hmm. do you have to practice almost match play to prepare for that? I mean, I mean, because you, you don't even play it until uh, the championships if, later on if yeah. you get to that point. So how do you kind of prepare for that? Yeah, we try within our team. You know, we had just a we had a one day match with ECU. We schedule it if you have extra days of competition. Let's say if you get rained out, you have an extra day. ECU schedules in a match. We did a match with Rollins. It was unofficial. Um, and a lot of these national team players from other countries, that's the format they play a lot in Europe, um, South America. They have national teams where you do go and play match play. So a lot of our players come in with that experience. But, yeah, during the year, we don't do that very much. So um, you try to maybe in practice, but obviously that's not the same. But um, it, it, it's definitely a different format. Like I said, you might have a, a guy or a girl who's better in match play than they are in stroke play because – Obviously, you're just playing for that one hole. If you have a player who, yeah, you know, she makes you know a double or a triple, but she makes a ton of birdies, that's somebody who's going to be good at match play. So there's a little bit of strategy involved there. Yeah, it's just very fascinating. But, uh, mm-hmm. hey, it's getting a lot of attention for the sport, and I think that's a good thing, and uh, that's exciting. And I was glad to see you on there on the, and the biggest stage there, uh, Coach. Uh, Emily Marin joining us here on the Black and Gold Banneret. Coach, congrats on the great year. Another great year for you. Uh, We're excited for you during that run and uh, really excited for you. Congrats on a great year, and uh, we look forward to doing this again down the road here and next year or another before you know it. Thanks so much, Eric. Appreciate it. All right, cool. Eric Lopez uh, speaking there with uh, Emily Marin, and they got a lot of good people coming back next year too, right, Eric? Young team, as she talked about. Yeah, this team is loaded with players like Emily Moon, led by her and other very young team. And, uh, you know, I think they will definitely take advantage from this incredible run that they've had here with a great finish, a great year, uh, finishing in the top 25 there, playing for the Nash, after advancing past the regional round, finishing 22nd overall, ahead of teams like Vanderbilt and Tennessee. So, I mean, just a great run. And what a job she's done. And, uh, just a f- awesome person and really happy for her success there and the, and the, with the program. Yeah. yeah, really cool. And you can tell the players really love playing for her, and she's really such a great – One of the great... leading candidates for the Bainey's Coach of the Year. That's perhaps. right. That's right. So, all right, thanks again to Emily. Thanks also to uh, Kelly Cartner and Ian McDougal for helping us out grab that interview. we got a few more coming in the next uh, several weeks here on the Black and Gold Banner at, Pan- at, Black and Gold Banner at Podcast with our uh, summer report cards. All right, we'll be right back uh, with Brian Murphy, who's going to join us to talk about the – MLB draft and UCF players going to the majors, or maybe not. Stick around. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. Jeff Sharon, uh, joined by Brian Murphy now here on the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. We sent we sent Eric out to go uh, to go run some errands. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we've got uh, – I wanted to talk about UCF baseball here on the show because uh, we have the MLB draft, um, which, uh, well, I mean – I, st- I don't know, man. I still feel like it's so weird that it happens during the college baseball playoffs. You know, I mean, guys are up at bat during the Super Regionals, and it's like, hey, we just got news that, you know, so-and-so for ECU just got drafted. You know, and it's like, oh, cool. All right, well, any- what's going to happen when they tell him when he gets back into the dugout? You know, I mean, it's, you know, he doesn't, he kind of doesn't get that moment. You know, that's kind of a bummer. But um, uh, it turns out that uh, three UCF Knights – uh, uh, were drafted twelfth uh, straight year, according to UCF, that UCF uh, that the Knights that that a knight has been taken. Um, none of them went until the final day, so no first two day picks. Um, uh, uh, the three that were selected were uh, Jordan Spicer uh, in the twenty fourth round of the Colorado Rockies, uh, 
Uh, Garrett Westberg went in the 26th round to the Seattle uh, Mariners. And Tyler Osick um, went to the 27th round uh, to the uh, Chicago White Sox. I don't know what it is, but like Tyler Osick sounds like a Chicago White Sox player. I don't know why I think that. But um, <laughs> it's a long. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's weird. From the Chicago White Sox, Tyler Osick. It's like, all right. Um, now, in addition, Brian Murphy, uh, you astutely yeah. reported. Um, that two 2019 UCF baseball commits have been uh, drafted as well. Keegan Pulford Thorpe, a left-handed pitcher, uh, was taken by the San Diego Padres in the 33rd round of the draft. And then uh, shortly thereafter, Hunter Pattison, another lefty, um, was drafted by the Cubs in the 35th round. Um, so, so in total, five either former, current, or future you know, UCF baseball players were picked in the third day of the draft. So rather than break down, um, you know, which guy is going to, you know, potentially go to the majors, and we don't know that. I mean, it's it's, it's baseball. So, but what, I, what I'm fascinated by, Brian, is that now I think, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I, okay, I follow baseball. I love baseball, okay? And the, the, <laughs> The Major League Baseball draft as a as a thing is like mysterious to me. And you brought up a good point about how you know the the first three or four or the first two rounds it's like you know the bonus money, and then you were getting to the part you know where some guys that are just selecting players just for the sake of selecting play. I don't know, like like Felipe Franks got picked by the Boston Red Sox. Like I don't even know if Felipe Franks has ever played baseball in his life. But he did in he did in high school. Oh, he well. Was. Well, yeah. I mean, like there's that. Yeah, he's you know, <laughs> exactly. Well, there's that. <laughs> Good for you guys. But um uh the Explain to us how this all works from like, like how it really works because there it's three days. There's a gazillion rounds and um and and some why do teams pick you know guys when they do and where where does your place in the draft indicate the likelihood that you get a shot or you know you know like for if you use a, a guy like Osik as an example right like what is what is getting drafted in the in in the twenty seventh round mean in terms of his baseball future? Well, there's a clear line of delineation between rounds ten, like the first ten rounds, mm -hmm. and rounds after round ten, like rounds eleven through forty. So in those first two days, you have the first ten rounds. Within those first ten rounds, you have what's called bonus pool money that's allotted to every team to spend on their picks in those rounds. And they have, they have a pool of money that they have to spend on these 10 picks or how many picks they have within these first 10 rounds. And, you know, you, you, and, and there's, a, there's a value assigned to each of those picks in the first 10 rounds that, they, that, that, that is kind of used as like, a, as like a baseline for how much more bonus money you can give these players. You can give these players more or less money to sort of, you know, overspend or save money to sign other players. But the point being is if you're selecting these first 10 rounds, not only are you going pro – but you're probably getting at least $150,000 on top of it as part of the bonus pool money. Uh, even if you're like late in the 10th round, I think the, the lowest bonus pool money slot is valued at like $142,000. So if you're in the first 10 rounds, and like let's say you're a high school prospect, 
uh, unless you're like a really, really highly ranked high school prospect who still wants to go to college, um, you know, you're, you're probably going to sign because you get that extra bonus money on top of it and it's pretty alluring. Uh, after that, you know, there's certainly a, there's like a decent contract after that. If you're like in the 11th round or 12th round, you can get, I think, a $125,000 contract. Uh, it gets less and less uh, as you go down the rounds. Um, the reason why teens select these high school seniors that they, uh, they, they, they know that they will not sign. Like Jack Leiter was signed by the Yankees in the 20th round yesterday. Jack Leiter is the son of Al Leiter. Uh, Jack Leiter is also considered one of the top 40 high school – well, really one of the top 40 prospects in all of amateur baseball. Uh, he's going to go to Vanderbilt. They've known forever that he was going to go to Vanderbilt. So no one took him. The reason why the Yankees took him in the 20th round is because at that point, there's no risk in maybe trying to say, hey, maybe we can convince him to play for the team that his father used to play for and his father now works for. Yeah. So maybe we can talk him out of his commitment. Now, still, Jack Leiter is going to Vanderbilt. I mean, it would be a shocker if he went to the Yankees in the 20th round because, again, he's one of the top amateur players in the nation. But when you get to the guys like, you know, you know, like Jordan Spicer or Tyler Osick, Garrett Westbrook, you know, these are seniors. And, and so, you know, you can kind of wait on them because they really don't have any much, much other options. So they wait on them until the 24th round, 27th, 26th round, uh, and so on. Um, so that, that, that's kind of how it goes. If you, if, you know, if you're within those first 10 rounds, there's always a threat of, of you signing. Uh, although I will say, you know, we've seen prospects from, or commits to UCF who were drafted in the 30th round or later, and they still signed to go pro out of high school instead of coming to college, maybe because that guaranteed contract uh, is, you know, it's, it's just something that they want, they need and want now. Um, so you never know. These two these two commits that UCF has has seen being drafted uh, this week, uh, you know, Keegan Pulford Thorpe and Hunter Pattinson, maybe they both sign. Maybe they both sign even though they're in the 30th round or above. Uh, because you just you just don't know what the, what their situations are like and what their what their their desires to go pro right now are. Even if you consider that if they came and went to college, they would have a good chance if they stayed healthy of improving their draft stock uh, three to four years from now. So where do these guys go from here now? Like uh, uh, like the three seniors in particular. I'll get back to the the, the two uh, lefty commits in a second, but. But yeah. where do, so okay? Osik goes to the White Sox. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, Westberg to the Mariners and Jordan Spicer. So so all right. So they see their names picked. They're like, all right, we're gonna, I'm going to take my shot. All right. So where yeah. do they go from here? So they will be assigned to each each franchise's rookie camp, mm-hmm. uh, and they'll play rookie they'll play rookie ball uh, sometime later this year. Now rookie, remember, now rookie ball is there, there's is there multiple levels of rookie ball or is that a ball or that I'm talking right about? no it's, it's it's not it's not specifically a ball right uh, and and you know some of these guys can be transferred I think straight into a or, or double a they they will not be but you can't that can happen uh, some guys by the way have made the pros without playing in the minor leagues at all these mm-hmm. are like really developed these are like really developed senior level MLB ready pitchers uh, and who have never played the minor leagues that that happens rarely. But they'll probably they'll probably go to like some some uh, uh, like like r- rookie summer fall ball, uh, you know pro pro associated ball. Uh, and remember like Ryland Thomas got drafted by the Reds I believe in, in like the like the thirty third round and he went and had a really strong uh, immediate uh, rookie season. Uh, so but after this you didn't have to wait to to get your assignment. 
to play in either A ball or high A or, or whatever, wherever you're going to be sent off to. Now, for some of these guys, they may not be even they may not be assigned to a camp after rookie ball. Like we're still waiting on a few guys to be assigned. I'm still waiting on Rowan Thomas mm-hmm. to get his camp assignment, who because he hasn't gotten it yet. And so I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure if there's something that's going on with him behind the scenes or if he's hurt. But after the after your your short stint in like rookie ball, then you have to be assigned to a to a to another camp, and you have to wait for that assignment. So uh, that's what kind of awaits them. It's it's look, it's not a glamorous journey by any means, and it gets less glamorous the further down the ladder you are. So if you love baseball and, and love it as a job, then you're totally fine playing in barren cities and barren stadiums paying for your own meals and having to ride the bus but uh uh it's it's a real it's 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 a real struggle from here even though these you know these these the days of getting drafted are still monumental for these kids these seniors who want to continue to play professional ball i get it but from here it is it is a a a long road if they ever have any sort of mlb you know uh major league dreams how much money do they get paid at that level I thought it was like initially, like I, I think the, the initially it's like is a hundred thousand initially. It's something like that. Um, but and then and then well and then after, that's like that's like to sign. That's like once you sign. Mm-hmm. But then like then like per year it's like it's like sub minimum wage. This is this is another thing that it'll be used to Well, no, I should say this. The player association does an awful job of protecting its minor leaguers because they're not they don't consider them to be. You know, pro players, you know, major leaguers, and and I think MLB sees them as I believe they're independent contractors. So they they have like really limited health benefits. Uh, they have no they 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 have no way of reaching into the retirement benefits because uh, you know they're not major leaguers, right. even though the MLBPA should be protecting them. Um, so they don't get it really. They they get they get paid a little bit a little bit a little well off the top, and then after that, it's really bad. It's really bad. It's like fifteen to twenty thousand, something like that, a year, depending on where you are in the lower in the lower levels of the minor leagues. This has been a, a this has really got antitrust suit written all over it that uh, Major League Baseball has lobbied against for years. Because as much as we think Major League Baseball should protect its minor leaguers, uh, they really don't, and they've let them out, they let them to hang high and dry for decades. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it. I think they look at it as a way of like, well, we're weeding out the guys who who we don't think are committed enough. Like, if you're committed enough to try and work your way up the system, you'll find a way. You know, what I mean? now I'm not saying yeah. I, I'm not saying I agree with that. It just feels like that's what they're saying by doing what they do there. You know what I mean? I mean, they're not. That, that, that's not true though, because there are guys who are lifers. There are guys who who ride the rails for 10, 15 years in the minor leagues because they like to play ball. And they have to deal with the same stuff. They have to have, you know, they have meal stipends. They have to do. It's it's it like for for a sport that has so much money, uh, as Major League Baseball does, for it not to trickle down into the minor leagues uh, to their to their players, which are you know properties of the major league clubs, uh, is really kind of asinine and just greedy. Uh, you know, it's like it's not. You can't just say to the guys they're not getting paid because they're not working hard enough to be pros. Some of these guys know they're not major league quality. But they're playing ball under the under the auspices of you know being associated with a major league club because they love baseball, and yet they're not being rewarded for it. Or you know they're being paid, uh, you know, 
you can't raise a family on what they're being paid. And it's really difficult. And reading a lot of the trials and tribulations of guys who have been in the minor leagues for like 10 years and, and what, what it takes for them to, to feed their families, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's really somber, but that's a, we're getting way off track now, but it really is a, it really is a tough life. No, no, I, this is, no, this is fascinating. It, it, well, well, I, I think a lot of people pop culture wise when they think of minor league base, like those minor league lifers that you think of, they think of like Crash Davis and Bull Durham, right? Yeah. And what you're saying is, is that <laughs> that's an even more glamorous depiction uh, of, of, life in the minors especially for you know a, a long time play and there are some several UCF guys that are still hacking around in the minor leagues um and yeah. uh, and I, I think they mentioned here uh UCF has now sent 107 players um to the MLB draft and there are still several that are out there uh I'm going to check baseball reference and see exactly how many but um but there's still a lot of guys that are out there who are uh, who are still St- still, you know, fighting the good fight, and uh, uh, and and that's kind of amazing to me. Well, I'll say this: so I had to look it up because I, I want to get these numbers right. So, I, and I just did a quick Google search on like how much the minor leaguers get paid. And again, it's it's bad. So, if you're if this is in a, this is from a 2017 article, but according to Major League Baseball, if you're in like if you're in like AAA, which is like obviously the high, the, the highest level below Major League Baseball, you get about ten thousand a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending, you know, but depending on uh, like give or take. But if you're in like short season or rookie ball, uh, where these guys are going into now, the UCF guys are going into now, they get about they get about eleven hundred a month. Mm-hmm. And and because they're independent contractors, they do they do not get paid for they don't not they do not get paid for time spent out of season. So they don't get paid in the off season. Yeah, they don't get paid in spring training. So then they're selling insurance, you know. Yes. It's it's a really really tough life. It really is. You gotta love the sport to really stick in the minor leagues for a long time. And the, the, the crime is these, these a lot of these people do. A lot of people stick in stick in the minor leagues until they're like 30, 35 years old because they love baseball. And it's just it just it's really hard to make ends meet. Yeah, I'm actually uh, tallying this, up the tallying up the this, numbers here of guys who are. Guys who are actually listed as 2019 in the there's 30 UCF players or 30 players with at least UCF ties um, who are in pro baseball right now. Go by the way, going from you know the recent draftees, you know all the way down to a guy like uh, you know Dan Winkler and Bo Taylor who um, you, you know who came up through in 20 you know came up through the system in 2011 right i mean they're still out there well dan winkler i, I don't know if he's down back in the minor leagues but he was with the braves as early as like a week ago so he's been he's been up and down in the, in the major leagues this year oh right so yeah that's does, true yeah he does get some major league pay but he's, yeah he's been back and forth actually this year between atlanta and and gwinnett which is their triple a team Right. So, but again, like if he's down in Gwinnett for a while, then he's getting, you know, $10,000 a year. And I should, should mention, I think in 2018, it was reported that the major league minimum is about five, $555,000 mm-hmm. per season. But that's so, if again, you have time, if you have time served, right? Like if you're basically, right. you, that, you know, so that, that is if you get like uh, enough to qualify like a full year in or yeah. a number of games played. Like, and how much is that? Do you know what the number is for that? Because the rookie, because the rookie numbers, that that goes back to the whole Chris Bryant thing. Like the rookie numbers for like 
what qualifies as a season served is weird and teams right. do weird stuff with high level prospects in the start of the year in order to keep them for that extra year on the contract and and all same that thing with Vlad, same thing with Vlad Guerrero Jr. this year with, with, the, with the Blue Jays. I mean, he got hurt, so they had a reason to keep him down in the minor leagues, but he could have come up anyway, and they kept him down because of service time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that service time is also is manipulated because they want to have an extra year of control over those guys, so they have an extra season uh, of non-free agency. Basically, they get, they get I think, a seventh year right. instead of six out of them. This has gotten really dystopian for what, what should have been a celebration of three UCF players that got drafted yesterday. Yeah, now it's it, it, it's it's yeah <laughs> yeah. Um, now okay, so uh, real quick before we get uh, before we get uh, get once again into the um, to the UCF uh, to the UCF guys real quick. Uh, yeah, oh, there was a good question I had and it just flew out of my head. It'll come back to me. It'll, it'll come back. <laughs> to me. But anyway, um, all right. So the guys that got picked. The, the, let's talk about the, the three guys who got picked. By the way, they're they're off on their journey and best of luck to them. the two kids yep. who were commits what's the likelihood that they come back to UCF in your opinion I mean you could just throw a coin up um, you know in that round there's not a whole lot of financial bonus um, to, to, to coming back again they're, they're drafting above round 30 um, so it's just you know there's not a whole lot of uh, you know of like hey we're going to just unload millions of dollars on you like these first round prospects, like that's not going to happen. It, it, who knows? Maybe they really want to play pro ball now. Maybe they want to make some money now. Maybe they maybe they got drafted by a team they really like, and they, they it's a dream for them to play for that organization, even if they're not playing for the major league club. So I, I don't know. Uh, it's really a guess. I, I the the signing deadline. I, I don't know the signing deadline off the off the top of my head, but I believe it's a few weeks from now. So we'll figure out, you know, I think either by the end of June or sometime in mid-July whether these kids are actually going to make it, they're actually going to come to UCF. But if you want me to guess, like, will they come or will they not, like, I have no earthly idea. Right. Um, analysis. Yeah, hashtag analysis. The um, but one last thing on the MLB draft itself before we get to UCF baseball in 2020, because, you know, now that, we, now that the draft is over, we have a little bit of a, you know, clear, a slightly clearer picture of what the roster is. It's probably going to look like and what the needs are and whatnot. But um, I guess real quick, if you could change something with the way the uh, with the way Major League Baseball conducts its draft process, aside from obviously you know paying minor leaguers a, a living wage, um, yeah, I, I you know and health benefits, I guess what would it be for? And for my money, it would be hold the draft a little later, hold it after the College World Series. Um, because it's kind of like it, it's kind of like we vomit up baseball for a little while here in June, and it, it, you know, and it's like it, it's it seems a little bit chaotic, and it, and it, I don't think it gives some of the better players a chance to really celebrate that moment as they should, and and in turn, it, it I think that kind of hurts baseball a little bit because they don't get to tout these guys because basically they're busy, right? Um, and we know how big drafts have gotten in the in in uh, in the NFL and the NBA, and I think Major League Baseball is trying to make it like that, you know, especially with the advent of MLB Network. But they've done it; they haven't done a very good job of it to this point. What would you change about it, though? Well, I don't know if you can change it. I don't know if you can move it because you know the MLB draft is so different than the NFL or or major or NBA draft because those players are being taken from the other sports. Those guys are being counted on to contribute right away. 
Whereas baseball knows that even your, your even your your best prospects are at least two to three years away from doing anything in the major league club, maybe four to five years away if they're a high school guy. Um, so I think holding it in season is actually prudent because you want because at least there's attention being paid to baseball. So having the baseball draft, which would not on its own, you know, be a, a huge eye grabber. At least you get people during the season paying attention to baseball. Now here's the draft. You're already watching baseball anyway, so you have this too. If you held it in like November, though, you know, like like in during like NBA season and NFL season when baseball is not going on, I, I think less people, I think fewer people would care because oh, there's, yeah. nothing that, like, it, it, there's, there's nothing that, that there's nothing that draws you to it. The reason why you're watching it now is because well, it's baseball season and yeah. hey, there's a draft going. So that's kind of why. So I don't know. I wouldn't move it. Uh, I, you know, you can always say like fewer rounds, but I mean, we've we they've they've always sort of cut down the round numbers uh, as the, as we've gone on in years. Like we're down to forty rounds. I, I, it wasn't that long ago that we were at fifty, and then it wasn't long before that that we were at I think at like sixty five. So they've done they've done that too. Um, I don't mind the process. Like, look, yesterday was in the last two days rounds two through t- rounds three through ten and rounds eleven through forty. They each take about six hours to, to, to conclude, but that means that on the third day, on your Wednesday, your rounds 11 through 40, you have a pick coming up like every 20 seconds, which mm-hmm. is kind of fun. Um, so I, I don't know what I would change about it, just because like, I don't know what hope it, it really has to be an eye grabber, to be a to be a real attention, attention grabber, because again, a lot of these kids are, are not gonna contribute for a while, and honestly, honestly, after the first maybe 15 rounds, Teams don't even know what they're drafting. I mean, really, they don't. They they depend, they depend on area scouts who might have seen a kid and liked what he like 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 the cut of his jib. You know, saw him in like two <laughs> games. He performed well, so they pick him up in like the the twentieth round or thirtieth round. They don't really know what they're getting. Now, some of these guys will be stars, and we'll go, "How did that guy fall so far?" That's because these teams don't really know these players. They really don't. They're just sort of they're they're going on the word of an area scout who might have seen a kid once or twice. And then they'll pick him in like the twenty, you know, ninth round or whatever. I think I think that guy in the Moneyball movie is like he's got an ugly girlfriend. He has no confidence, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that right. kind of so, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, thankfully that's less out of the game. And, and but uh, yeah, I mean it kind of is that sort of thing. Like okay, I mean the guy sounds good. And I, I should say this: when you get in like rounds like thirty-five to forty, you get like what we saw yesterday. Uh, the White Sox drafted the son of their clubhouse manager. Uh, the Padres drafted the son of Dave Roberts, who used to be their manager and player, while Roberts was actually coaching a game, uh, managing a game for the Dodgers. Uh, the Blue Jays did an awesome thing of drafting Roy Halladay's son in round 32. I thought that was amazing. Um, but you see all these, you know, sons and uh, players who are drafted only because they have a, a connection to the club otherwise. Like Carlos Correa's brother was drafted in the 38th round by the Astros. Of course he was. Uh, you know, so they're not taking these guys because they think they're they're going to be pro, pro prospects. They're taking them because like, hey, why not? At this yeah. round, who you know, let's just let's just let's just you know have have a nice familial moment here with someone who's in our organization. But again, if you expect that these 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 teams really dug in deep on some twenty fifth round pick, uh, they really haven't. It's probably just an area scout who's reporting back to them saying, hey, I saw that kid once; he was pretty good. And sure, we'll, we'll take him here. Yeah. I guess maybe the best example of that is Mike Piazza because uh, Piazza was he was going to Miami Dade Community College, and his dad reported this. The story is his dad um, and was friends with Tommy Lasorda, 
And he yeah. asked Tommy Lasorda to just, you know, can you just take my kid as like a little family favor? Um, and and they did. And they and the Dodgers picked him in the 62nd round. He was the 1,390th player picked overall in the 1988 draft. And he turns out to be the best power hitting catcher of all time. Um, I even say, there are guys, so like guys like, and this is like kind of going back, so things have changed, but guys like Bruce Tudor, uh, Larry Walker, Bobby Bonilla, those guys were undrafted coming out of uh, coming out of college. Yeah. So even if you're undrafted, there's still a chance you can get a shot. Right. Just all depends on player development, and that's something I think that gets overlooked. All right. Real quick, let's talk uh, 2020. How much clearer is the picture for UCF's roster now? Well, I, I'll preface this by saying that things will probably still change. You'll probably still have some guys transfer out. Uh, that that we expect to come back. I'm not going to mention names because I don't want to be like I don't want to put the the cart before the horse. But boo! Just kidding. Yeah, right. I mean, but you, you you'll probably see a couple guys who are still on the roster who will not be on the roster next fall because they'll have transferred. I, I that's 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 my assumption. But this draft, as it was, went pretty well for UCF in terms of their 2020 outlook because there were two there were two, you knew the seniors were going to go. Um, well, well, we can get into that too. We should get into that, like the seniors who didn't go, which was kind of shocking. But the, the, there were two red, there were two junior players, Ray Alejo and Dallas Beaver. Ray Alejo is a redshirt junior, I believe. Dallas is a true junior, but both of them were obviously draft eligible. And I thought that at least Ray would go. I mean, he's got he's a he's a defensive center fielder, really fast, who's shown a hit tool and some pop. Uh, this last year, he's kind of transformed himself a little bit into more of a um, a gap hitter than, than a singles hitter. But he does not get drafted, which means he can come back to UCF and play a senior season. Dallas Beaver does not get drafted, so he can come back and play a senior season. We talked last week on this podcast about the, how that lineup looks pretty thin without those guys in it. Well, those guys might be back now because they were not selected. So really, that really helps UCF, uh, assuming they're both back. Um, so I think the outlook for this team, at least offensively, is much better than it was 48 hours ago. I'll say that. Now, pitching-wise, it's kind of the same. You knew the guys were going to go. They're seniors. They're going to leave. There wasn't anybody. There wasn't really anybody on that on that on that like will he won't he ledge. You know, Trevor Holloway was a junior. He's draft eligible, but he had surgery. He had bicep. Uh, no, not surgery, but he had he had a bicep injury that, that caused him to miss uh, most of the season. So he wasn't really going to be picked. Um, but I, I think this drive coming out of it, uh, it, it assuming Alejo and Bieber are both back, um, it worked out pretty well for UCF uh, going into next season. Now, you think that's shocking that they didn't go? I'm shocked that Alejo didn't go. So okay. I'm not a draft pick. I'm not a draft pick by any means. Could have uh, fooled but, us. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. No. But if you, had t- if you had asked me to rank like the top three guys who I thought would be drafted this year out, out of UCF, uh, Alejo's in that top three. There's no doubt. He is he he he's, so he's got he's got he's got like two or three tools like automatically he's got he's got a run tool he's really fast he's he's a, he's a and so he's also a really good defensive center fielder he's a good defender at a premium position with great speed and then and then this year again like I said he transformed himself into less of a singles hitter and more of an extra base guy now he slumped late in the year really badly. Uh, and he's got to learn to control the strike zone and have better rec- rec- recognition of balls and strikes because his strikeout rate is way too high for a guy uh, of his skill set. Yeah. But 
just 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 sort of gambling on this like this guy who's a good athlete, a good runner, and is now showing some pop. I'm surprised he not, he doesn't he's not going to selection. I would say the most shocking surprise for me was that Kyle Kemp does not get a look. He's a a, a, tra- a transfer from Lipscomb. Now, in three years of Lipscomb, Kyle Kemp did not have great numbers, but he comes to UCF last year, and yeah, I understand he's kind of he's a little undersized. He is he's, he's a right-handed reliever-only prospect, but he was dominant at UCF here as the closer for UCF. Uh, he I think he struck out like almost 12 per nine. Opponent's batting average I think was 129. Uh, he did walk. You know, he had some control problems. I think he walked too many guys. Literally had 21 walks in 30 innings. But again, when you, when you see a guy who creates, uh, you know, soft contact, misses a lot of bats, uh, and, and you know, has thrown in the mid to low 90s, you can work with that. Like, can't you work with you know a guy with some control issues? Like, can you just like not like iron that out? Sure. So I'm shocked, especially as a senior, because. You know, at least with Alejo, teams can look at him and say, "Well, he's only a junior. He may not he may not come to us if we take him in the in the thirtieth round." But for a senior, where there's no risk, and, the, and you know they they're kind of they're at your beck and call. For Kyle Kemp not to get a call is really shocking to me. I, I was really surprised that he's not going to shot after a dominant season at UCF. Yeah, I mean, he actually uh, tweeted you know yesterday you know you know thanks, but. I was looking at his Twitter feed, and, and the tweet that he had right before that, this was yesterday, just four words. He says, just need one shot. And I'm like, yeah. you know, I mean, that's 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 kind of heartbreaking. Because that's the thing. I mean, I know I've said this with other sports before, you know, but when you're an athlete and you're that close to success as an athlete, professional success as an athlete, all these guys, you know, they all say the same thing. All I want is just one shot. If I if mm-hmm. I if I get my shot and I fail, I can live with that. But if I but I can't live with not getting the shot. That's frustrating, and I, I'm totally with Kyle Kemp on that one. Any other seniors that you were surprised that 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 didn't go? I mean, you know, there are seniors like Matthew Micah, who I mean is really he was really the only four year starter on this team this year. Yeah. Uh, he's among, among the top ten at all time in UCF in games played at bats, stolen bases. He doesn't get a look. Uh, you know, you had pitchers like Chris Williams uh, and, and Grant Sherman who don't get looks at, at seniors. I wasn't as surprised there, especially when you're when you're dealing with pitchers like Grant and Chris. Like, yeah, they're 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 nice pitchers. They've got you know decent stuff, but you got a lot of mileage when you're a senior, though. But but also if you don't hit, if you don't hit ninety like if you don't hit ninety no one's looking at you anymore it's it's really kind of sad like Grant is a craft Grant is kind of a, a craftsman pitcher like he's like that crafty lefty he's definitely is uh, because he's a changeup curveball slider guy who kind of works his fastball in and out but that fastball pops out at eighty eight um, and and you know Chris Williams throws a little harder but he really didn't have, did not have a great season this year and and. Uh, so I think I was not surprised that they, they don't get picked because they just don't throw hard, whereas, you know, it's kind of like a prerequisite if you're a pitcher. Uh, and, and Matthew Micah, I was a little surprised that he wasn't picked um, just because, again, he's a senior, so there's no risk there. He's showing a decent hit tool. He can run. He's an okay fielder at a good position, at a premium position. Um, but there's nothing that really stood out about him as opposed to Alejo, who I think is faster, who I think is a better defender and has shown more power. Um, so I mean, it's too bad because again, now they're they're only off, they're only choice is really to 
you know, hope for a, a, a undrafted free agent call. Maybe they go to the independent leagues. Yeah. Which is sort of, which is sort of like, uh, you know, beyond the wall uh, for a game of Thrones. <laughs> beyond like, the uh, wall. It's, 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 that's it, a, it's, that's a very accurate dis- depiction of it. To be honest with you, <laughs> it is. Um, so, but hey, you know what? If you're playing, if you're playing independent leagues, you're not playing because you you think you can make it to the majors. You're playing because you love baseball. So maybe they maybe they keep playing because you love baseball. And and to them, I say go get it because again, you can't play baseball forever. You can always go, you know, sell insurance or work at a car dealership later on in life. But if you if you love this then go do it for as long as you can for as, as long as it makes financial sense um, because it'll, it, you'll do, you lose it in short order. Yeah. Yeah. That's, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Murph. It's very insightful. It's, that's, oh. that's a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, red meat to chew on there, man. That was really good. And now you, ladies and gentlemen, know all you need to know about the MLB draft process. Well, one last tidbit. Uh, well, hopefully, I think I, got, I guess I think I got most of that right. Should have said that off air. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so Jordan Spicer being picked in the twenty fourth round is actually the latest that any UCF player has been taken, or the latest that the first UCF player has been taken in a draft since two thousand nine, uh, which I believe was the year that Shane Brown was taken by the uh, Yankees. Uh, he was like pick two oh eight, whereas Spicer was like pick. Like, he was later on than that. But just to kind of like the hammer home the point of like you never know in these rounds. Right. So Shane Brown, Shane Brown back in 2009 was taken in some round and you know pick up up 200 and whatever. But uh, no, it was actually more. It was actually more than that. But just before him, like just before, like a few picks before him, Blake Trinan was selected out of college by the Marlins. Now it took Blake Trinan, Blake Trinan a while to to be what he is, but now Blake Trinan is. One of the top five relievers in all of baseball, and so you just never know. You never know, you know, what's going to happen. Also, the fifth straight year, they used to have had multiple nights, more than one, taken in the MLB draft. That's not including prospects, so uh, they can also hang their hat on there too. Cool. All right, Brian Murphy, thank you so much. I know you're going to go talk to Greg Lovelady a little bit later uh, today. Get a little. Uh, uh, reaction to that, and perhaps some, you know, post uh, post baseball season, you know, very very post mortem, um, yes. but but nonetheless, it'll, it should be interesting to hear from. We'll be uh, I'll be keeping track of you. Hang hang in there, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Thanks, Jeffrey. All right. Spokes underscore Murphy on Twitter. Stick around. We'll be right back after this. All right. Welcome back to the show. We'll wrap it up here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Oh, look at this. Hey, Murph is back. Okay, so I kind of, I, I didn't lie. I just, you know, I, 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 I was creative with the truth. Um, and Lopez is back too. So, uh, and the reason why is because uh, uh, Murph, you, uh, you actually have just finished up uh, talking to Greg Lovelady in his sort of uh, postseason, post MLB draft exit interview. See you guys after the summer kind of deal, right? So, um, uh, well, how did it go? <laughs> well, well, as per Greg Lovelady's uh, usual uh, stance, it was long, which is totally fine because we like quotes. And it was about 35 minutes with, with Coach just uh, sitting on the concourse behind home plate. Uh, and, you know, we, we kind of talked a little bit about the conference tournament because we hadn't talked about uh, that or the NCAA tournament since we last saw him. So, you know, we talked about how it was, you know, obviously disappointing. How they, didn't get it. they felt better this year than they did after the tournament 
differently than last year. They, they, they felt better about their chances of getting in. They saw the Baseball America had them in, uh, in their last projected bracket. Um, so obviously disappointing, but he was really proud of the way his team uh, obviously fought and won those two games against Memphis and Tulane. And if you watch and go back and, and, and go on the Americans uh, baseball Twitter account, you can see Greg uh, in his post-game interviews with Haley Otten after those two conference tournament wins really started to get choked up. And yeah. I, asked him today, I asked him today about what sort of was the source of that, of that emotion. And he said, you know, that's – it's because that team, even with all the injuries and stuff, they were still fighting, and they knew that they had heard from so many sources how they just were not good enough to be in the tournament. They were out of the field, and and they just wouldn't give up. And I think that sort of you know the walk off win and then Jordan Spicer's game of his career, uh, those two things, uh, you know, happening on that stage where they're fighting for their season, I think really got to him emotionally, and. Um, so, we, you know, he, he was very complimentary on, on, on each of the three guys who got drafted, uh, Jordan Spicer, Garrett Westbrook, and Tyler Rosick. Um, and and uh, I don't know, do we have clips that we want to play? Yes. Play? Yes, we do. We have some guy named Brian Murphy got those clips for us. Here they are right now. This is uh, Greg Lovelady speaking uh, to the media uh, earlier today, th- Thursday, June the 6th. I'm really proud of Jordan. You know, I, I don't know if a month ago that, that again, you saw this, and just the, the growth. And you've always had the ability. I mean, he's shown flashes of it. And, uh, but you got to be consistent with it. And I think he just really grew. He graduated, which was unbelievable. Um, I think that took a lot of load off his shoulders. And, um, man, this last month, he, he looked like he looked like a top five round pick, you know. And, um, and so I'm excited for him. He deserves this. He's worked really, really hard. He cares. And, um, I'm excited to follow him. This summer and uh, Tyler? You know, good. Like, same thing. Like, you know, th- th- this is something that he's wanted his entire life. And, uh, you know, living in kind of under his dad's shadow and knowing, I think, the pressure that he put on himself because of that. I think the things that people kind of, some positive, some negative thoughts that people had about him, you know, oh, you know, you only got this and that because of your dad. You only did this because of your dad. You only got drafted by the Pirates because it was your dad. You know, and not knowing if he was going to play, not getting a chance to go D1, then going to Juco and being hurt and overcoming all that and getting an opportunity here. And, I mean, just a professional hitter. Uh, and, you know, the game's on the line and, and we need a big hit. You know, he's one of those guys that you want up there, you know, that puts the time and effort in and really worked on his defense. And, uh, really, you know, guy that we thought, hey, DH, third base maybe. And, and to be, we threw him out in left field last year with no experience and he was a great left fielder. Put him at first base this year, back back and forth, never complained, did a great job. I mean, I, I, he's got a chance to win maybe a gold glove, like barely made any errors. I mean, that's just remarkable for somebody with, you know, that hasn't been there an entire life. And so, and I'm proud of it's, it's not the Pirates, because again, it showed, I think he showed everybody that he, he, he earned this. Uh, this isn't a, a legacy pick, it, it's a pick that he's earned. Uh, he deserves it. I'm really proud of the kid, you know, we've butted heads. Uh, you know, just by just some of the things he's done, but he's grown up a lot. And, and the thing that I can respect a lot of him is, is um, you know, he, he, him and I, we're, we're fine. Like, we butt heads, but, like, I, he knows I want to win, and I know that he want, he cares, and I know he wants to play pro ball. And, and uh, we did everything we could to try to make that happen, and, and I'm glad that it did. And, uh, you know, I'm excited again to watch all those guys, but just to see him go out and prove that he can – He's proven he can hit in high school. He's proven he can hit it at, at, at an NA high school. He's proven he can hit in Juco. Proven he can hit at this level. He's going to prove again that he can hit, hit at the next level, too. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, it's something that means a lot to him, I know, I think, just from what things he's gone through, just with dealing with all that other stuff. That, 
he earned it himself. That's Greg Lovelady, uh, head baseball coach of UCF, as they uh, as they head into the summer. I, you know, I, I, I did the one game, the Memphis game, and that was the first one where he, and we were watching in the booth, me and uh, Garrett Walford, and and we knew how. I mean, you could hear it as we were listening. Like he was, he was. It sounded like he was barely holding it together, and I think that's yeah. Yeah, it's a credit to the team and the final analysis that you know. I think there are teams that you know there are they. It's it's not about expectations, but it's do it's do they rise to the occasion and outperform what even the what even they think is possible? And I think in the mm-hmm. in that two game set, that's that's what they did. And I think actually this team, you know, for the most part. Well, I mean, we've talked about this on previous shows, but they did overachieve this year. They did. Yeah. They did. I mean, they, they again, they they threw guys out there like like Zach Hunsaker or Jalen Whitehead who, you know, are young pitchers who probably were not ready to contribute at the level which they did. Uh, Hunsaker really became one of the most trustworthy relievers in the second half of the year. Uh, Whitehead was used uh, quite often as an opener for uh, a lot of midweek games, and you know those were pretty big roles for them. And they had some ups and downs. But I think Lovelady was impressed that you know even though those guys may not have been expecting to contribute that much this year, they rebounded. They had some good moments. There's some things they can use to take into 2020. Yeah, it kind of it kind of does remind me of um, the uh, Johnny Dawkins' second year at UCF mm-hmm. when they had all those injuries and Taco Fall was out the whole year and Aubrey Dawkins was supposed to play but didn't because of his injury and BJ and when and when BJ Taylor finally got back Taco Fall was hurt um and still that team I think they what was it 19 games that year right Some, yeah so 19 so almost won 20 either won 20 games on the nose or almost won 20 I forget but they they had no business winning that many games Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's it's unfortunate that they got lost in the shuffle trying to get to the NCAA. Obviously, if you ask people like Baseball America, they figure that they should have been in and TCU shouldn't. That's a conversation for another day that we've probably already had. But um, mm-hmm. but but yeah, I, I do think that you know if the off season continues, if they get the guys back that were hurt that that they thought that they were supposed to have to begin with, and they keep them healthy. You know that that does bode well for 2020, and as well for you know, it, it, like we talked about earlier in the show, Ray Alejo and um, and Dallas Beaver potentially coming back, having not been drafted but still having eligibility remaining. Right, right. And Lovelady was very non- uh, noncommittal on on both those players today. He knows they can come back for their senior seasons. Uh, Ray's a redshirt junior, I believe. Dallas, a junior. but. Because they've been through the draft, because they were draft eligible, because they were not selected, they still could sign a undrafted contract if they wanted to, or you know they could look to, um, you know, I, I believe Ray may have an opportunity uh, to play somewhere else as a grad transfer. I, I'm not sure, but they, but, they, but the, the point being is that they could both not be at UCF because they could sign a pro con- contract uh, following the draft. Um, but again, if they are in the fold, you know, if if you look at this team now, if you, if you Put in both Alejo and Beaver with Dalton Wingo, um, and uh, obviously Greg Lovelady was very high on a pitcher, Ben McKee, who really flashed um, fantastic arm strength and a pretty solid bat, power bat. 
um, with some of the recruits they're bringing in and some of the guys who didn't get as much of an opportunity last year, like Jeff's boy, Jay Lyons, maybe playing more. That's right. Uh, maybe, maybe this team, uh, you know, certainly offensively, is better than it looked a week ago. And then, and then on the mound, you know, Joe, Sher- Joe Sheridan gets healthy. You have Trevor Holloway, who's healthy. Jeffrey Hakinson, who's closer, is healthy. Um, you know, stuff like that. And then obviously they'll have a lot, they have a lot of, again, uh, they can also always uh, drop into the JUCO market, which I assume they will, to fill some spots uh, over the summer. So, um, yeah, things don't look as dire. And I think that Beaver and Alejo not getting drafted really gives them more hope for next year than, than maybe at least I thought that they, uh, they had. Yeah. All right, so memo, memo to Sam Unger, don't worry. We're going to be all right. Yeah. We're going to be fine. I will say I, I will say also, <laughs> he, he, you know, I think more than more than Alejo and Bieber not getting drafted, he knows those guys have another chance to play uh, in college ball if they want. He was really more frustrated and disappointed for his seniors, and he mentioned by name Chris Williams, Kyle Camp, and Grant Sherman, the three pitchers. You know, he mentioned, and he also said that Micah should have been drafted. Matthew, Matthew Micah should have been drafted, but for those pitchers, he was very upset. Um, he mentioned that uh, Kyle Camp. I did not know this. Kyle Camp has had two Tommy John surgeries. Two. So yes. So no matter how dominant was I mean, Kyle Kemp was very dominant and healthy this year with you know a 129 opponents batting average he had a K per nine rate of around 12 per nine uh he had a, a pretty solid ERA you know that's probably why he was not selected and we talked about this this morning Jeffrey so I mean this is me going back to edit myself from the first to <laughs> second of the show with my my sh- I was shocked Kyle Kemp didn't get drafted but now I kind of understand why teams are pretty wary of his medicals after he said two Tommy John surgeries, but still, even with that, um, he was so good when healthy. It's surprising that he still didn't get a shot, it's, or has not gotten a well, shot as of yet. Well, look at that, Brian. We've actually developed a story in the course of one podcast, so that'll work. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, so cool. Thanks again to Greg, and thanks to um, Ian uh, McDougal for helping us out uh, on that. A little news uh, note to pass along. This is the final UCF event, UCF Athletics event of the 2018-2019 uh, 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 athletic season. Tonight, June 6th, okay, uh, Thursday evening in Austin, Texas, the UCF 4x100-meter women's relay team will compete in the NCAA Outdoor Track and Field Championships um, you will see them at 8.02 p.m. Eastern Time. 8.02 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday on ESPNU. Um, UCF is the 12 seed, um, having punched their ticket. Uh, this is according to the release, um, with a 43.72 in their heat in the NCAA Eastern um, preliminaries. Um, it's the 10th time in the last 11 years that UCF has made it to the NCAA, or at least has had so- someone make it to the NCAA. Um, and for the... Uh, Unbelievable. It, yeah, it's amazing. And by the way, for the 4 by 100 if you're on that team, you're expected to go to the NCAAs because they've been to five of the last seven. Okay, so... Um, uh, let's give it up for... Uh, by the way, the four athletes that we're looking at, Shania Williams, Ciara Holback, uh, Beyonce DeFridis, and Lauren Gallman. So, um, so yeah, this is... Uh, and by the way, those those first three, Shania, Ciara, and Beyonce, they're all rookies 
Uh, Lauren was uh, was on the third leg last year. Um, she's the anchor this year. So uh, and again, I mean that's going to be um, that's going to be fun to watch if they uh, if they qualify for the finals. Um, it's the top two teams in each heat plus the next best two times for an in each the next two best times. Uh, it's an 18 field for the four by one finals, and those are scheduled for Saturday at 6:30 on ESPN two. But you got to get through. You got to be one of those first two, or have a really good time. Um, and that's 8:02 p.m. Eastern Thursday night, June sixth. So again, make a note. That's ESPNU. ESPNU. Uh, that's right. That's gonna be. Uh, that's gonna be big. I'm gonna be watching that. That's. And then if they advance, it could be moved to ESPN and things like that. But uh, what yeah. a year tracking there and Dana Boone, uh, man, getting it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're hoping uh, to get her during this uh, summer here. Once this is done, among other coaches, we had Emily Marin on. Or on this episode, we're going to have other coaches on in future uh, weeks and episodes. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I have no idea how the heck we're going to. Vote. We got a heck of a lot of choices for the Bannies this yeah. year in a lot of. Yeah, and now that's on me. I got to get the nominations out to all you guys. So keeping the yeah, out of your I, inboxes. I thought, I thought, I thought. Now I thought that was happening last week. I thought they were getting the nominations last week. No, is that why no, you're no. wearing? Is that why you're wearing a suit, Murph? Is that why you're wearing a suit? <laughs> oh, I'm always wearing a fancy hat as I am at this exact moment. Right. That's just me. Well, well, here's um, here's gonna here's gonna be my uh, ex post facto excuse. Um, it's it's the UCF four by one hundred relay team's fault because if they if they advance tonight, okay, let's say they advance tonight and they go yeah. to the finals on Saturday and, and they perform really well, or maybe they win, which we should not rule out, right? Um, yeah. Right. Like, do they like automatically win team of the year? <laughs> <laughs> thing we got time to discuss. We got time you know to we discuss. can figure we can so, figure that out. There's certainly a nominee. All right, so so there so there's that. Um, in the meantime, by the way, if they get to Saturday, if they get to Saturday, the coverage is on ESPN two. That's right, six thirty p.m. Eastern on ESPN two. If they get to the finals on Saturday in Austin, mm-hmm. Texas. So good luck to uh to good good luck to the four by one team. All right, uh, Lopez, you've got uh, speaking of. People doing stuff in the summer uh, in uh, sort of international sports. Um, you got a really good piece up right now that uh, uh, on uh, the Women's World Cup coming up, right? Yeah, Women's World Cup gets started on Friday, and uh, we got you know UCF's very heavily involved in this Women's World Cup. Uh, you got, of course, our own, very own Alina Reyes, who just got inducted to the UCF Athletic Hall of Fame, was on with us a couple months back when they were playing uh, the United States in a friendly in the uh, tour, you know, up in Tampa. Her and Kat Sousa will be part of the Brazilian national team here in the Women's World Cup. Uh, and then you've got as well as uh, Sophie Howard, former Knight, who will be uh, was part of UCF from 2012 to 2014. She's on the Scotland national team. And then we got current Knight, the first ever UCF player to participate in the World Cup while enrolled in school. Kanya Plummer who was part of last year's team, she's the captain for the Jamaican national team. So they're all going to participate. And then the cool thing about it is they're going to play each other. Like, you're not going to wait too long. Um, because Reyes and Sousa in Brazil, they're going to begin their World Cup play against uh, Jamaica uh, on Saturday, 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Fox Sports 1 or Telemundo. I'm watching, the Spanish I'm watching it. I'm watching it, baby. Because both Brazil and Jamaica are in Group C 
Uh, and then on the same day, Howard and Scotland will play England at noon Eastern on Fox and Telemundo. Uh, so uh, they're going to get Saturday. That's a big day for UCF women's soccer. Really excited, really proud. I'm actually going to take some heat for this. Oh, boy. So part of me's, Look out, part Brian. Of me's, if Brazil plays the U.S., I'm rooting for Brazil. Uh, well, Michelle Akers isn't playing for Team USA, obviously, but... I'm just um, saying, like, what what's going to do? One of my best friends could be the starting goalie. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, that's 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 a hard call, man. You know, that that would make for a really boys, good poll. Tell me, tell me what to do. What do I do? Um, I will say this: this is this is the most UCF people involved in um, the uh, women's world in any single women's World Cup um, ever with four seven nights have participated in the women's World Cup. Women's World Cup, obviously, Michelle Akers, who's you know who's a legend. Um, Amy Griffin uh, played at UCF from 1987 to 91 uh, and was a goalie on the 91 team. And uh, let us not forget, more recently, Lena Peterman, who um, yeah. played for Germany um, in the 2015 Olympics. I was a little Women's surprised she wasn't involved this year. I was too. I was surprised at her. Uh, obviously, Stephanie Sanders probably was, I think, is in the German system. Um, and right. I think one, I think one other player, I forget exactly who, but. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I was a little bit surprised by that too. It's unfortunate, but um, but yeah, that'll be. We'll be looking forward to that. And that that Brazil Jamaica game is when again? Saturday. Saturday uh, morning, at nine thirty yeah. Eastern. Uh, and, it'll be on FS1. Yeah, and Kanye and is the Jamaican team captain, if I'm not mistaken, too. Right. That's correct. She okay. is the captain of the team, so she'll play. Uh, yeah, she'll be a part on the field. Hopefully, Reyes starts at goalie for Brazil. I don't. We don't know that at this time. Uh, you know, they're obviously very good. Uh, but uh, you know she'll be she's on the team, so that's exciting. So yeah, they'll be on there. Uh, I believe Jen Hilbreth will be calling that match at nine thirty. Then JP Tech uh, Della Camera, who's the voice mm-hmm. of women's uh, soccer, will be calling the new cool. Fox coverage there. So that's part of the World Cup group stage early on, and it's uh, the cup goes from uh, just starts Friday, and then it concludes on I believe July seventh is when the final is. So all, right. uh, all the way from France, of course, you got the United States for all you. Uh, Pride fans, or I know, are right now it's been a tough year because they've been, a, quite frankly, bad. <laughs> um, you know, you got Alex Morgan and company, of course, with the U.S. national team. Yeah. But you got, but in the meantime, you got Bridget Callahan, the former UCF players on the or a Pride team, so right. in Orlando. And also, this so, is the twentieth anniversary of the uh, 99ers, yeah. Michelle Akers and head coach Tiffany Roberts Sahadak. Who, um, I don't yeah. know, is is Tiffany over in France? Do you know? I don't know that. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise but, me either way. Uh, I don't know that for a fact. So I would say that. Uh, but obviously they'll be following that very closely. And like you know, so it wouldn't surprise me. And it is a month, so I could see her swooping in for a week, maybe. Who knows? But yeah, uh, should be excited. Just great to see. And it's. I'm excited. I'm generally excited for the all the see the UCF players involved and hope they do very well. In all seriousness, I mean, I. Like I said, I hope obviously if Reyes, especially if she's goal starting at goal, I'm not going to root against her. I mean, I'm sorry. So, right. I mean, she's uh, so. I mean, hopefully they do very well. It should be exciting World Cup uh, and a great stage. And they, you know, we'll see how they do. Sounds good, Murph. What do you got coming up? Uh, perhaps in the next uh, in the next week or so. I think I'll take a look at UCF baseball 2020. Uh, certainly not with 2020. Way too uh, early roster. Yes, it's really it really is way too early because we're not sure. Uh, if if you know the high school prospects that were that were, were drafted will sign or what what's going to happen with Ray Leo and Dallas Beaver and you know obviously they'll add players throughout the summer uh, you know Greg Lovelady asked Greg Lovelady is going if he's going to watch Super Regionals and he goes no I'm recruiting 
So there's yeah. that. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but I'll look and see, you know, what's on the roster now and, and take uh, our 35-minute interview with uh, with Greg today and kind of use that to flesh out maybe what we can expect to see on the field in uh, next February. All right, cool. Sounds good. And we got, obviously, NBA draft coming up. We'll do some draft profiles as well. And, obviously, the bandy's coming up as soon as I decide to, you know, ask the guys for – yeah, don't well. don't say don't 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 say like I'm this not, is the last show before we do banning nominations. Not, I, I at can't, this point, who knows? The I can't make any. Out. I can't make any promises at this point. You're just well, gonna there's have no to, last shows, boys. We're gonna be on. Right, they're out. Right. The, we're gonna we're, have a lot of different guests and different topics. Come on, we we don't mm-hmm. take vacations. At least I don't. I know. It's, and we're gonna and we're gonna ha- and you know what you're gonna have to do to find out everybody. You're gonna have to follow us at blackandgoldbanneret.com for all the latest. Well, how, yeah. Well, how about this too? Because I got this email this week. I, Eric probably got this email too. You know, we're we know we're about five weeks away from. We're about five weeks away from AAC football yeah. media days oh my God, really? in Rhode Island. Holy smokes, dude! Five Get those weeks. lobsters ready. Lobsters. Your boy will be flying back up to Newport. This is this is the last Rhode one in Newport, isn't it? I, th- I hope so. I think it is. But God, I what? <laughs> it's brutal. I think you're right. I think it has to be right because it moves. Because they're moving the office to Fort Worth, right? Yeah. Good. Good. Plane flights to Rhode Island are not great. Yeah. So. By the way, by the way, I can't imagine they're very good. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, Eric, bringing it full circle. That's exactly what you're thinking, right? If the Big Twelve implodes, look where the American Athletic Conference's new offices are: Fort Worth, Texas. Right. All right. Um, All right. Uh, like we said, blackandgoldbanneret.com for all the latest updates on that. UCF underscore banneret on Twitter, facebook.com slash blackandgoldbanneret. And don't forget to follow us, if you dare, at uh, Jeff underscore Sharon, Eric Lopez, Elon Spokes underscore uh, Murphy. Fellas, thanks again. Enjoy it. Thank you, Jeffrey. And thank you for listening. This has been the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. We'll catch you next week. 